the giant thinkers giant thinkers podcast hey guys welcome to the show i'm ram castillo and in this podcast i'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers creatives and giant thinkers G'day Giants, Ram here. Welcome to episode number 56. Our guest today is the president and CEO of EFI Worldwide. EFI is an organization best known for championing and improving the practice and practitioners of marketing effectiveness. Prior to joining EFI Worldwide, our guest spent 13 years at Cadbury Schweppes in a variety of marketing and business roles up to global business development director. And she also spent almost seven years at Shell International. Her roles at Shell included general manager of global consumer brands, global head of brand strategy in retail, and vice president of external relations, Asia Pacific. Amongst her impressive career title, she's also a mum, so you can see why I'm so honoured and excited to introduce her. Some of the topics we spoke about include ways to build exceptional relationships without compromising our integrity, lessons learnt from transitioning from the food and beverage sector to the fuel and energy sector, how to manage culturally diverse teams both directly and virtually, and advice for creatives when starting a product or service business. If you're someone who is interested in the fusion of marketing, leadership, and people skills, then this is for you. Now, before we dive in, speaking of leadership and people skills, many of you know how passionate I am about advocating mentorship. Mentors act as a compass to help navigate all areas of our life, whether that be professional development, mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, and personal. We can all cut the guesswork, see the blind spots, and succeed faster with a mentor, and not just one, but as many as we'd like. So if you're having trouble finding a mentor, make sure you grab a copy of my second book, How to Get a Mentor as a Designer, where I break down how in 12 steps. It's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. You can grab a copy at gettingamentor.com. Again, that's gettingamentor.com. Alrighty, let's begin. I present to you the highly experienced, intelligent, Superwoman of Marketing, Tracy Alford. Tracy Alford, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Ram. Well, thank you for making the time. Uh, To those listening, Tracy and I connected via our mutual friend, Andrew Billy Baxter. Uh, He's the (laughs) chairman of Publicist Communications Australia and New Zealand, um, who was actually on the podcast not too long ago. So thank you, Billy, for linking us. First off, Tracy, I have an icebreaker question for you. Sure. What's an app that has made the most impact in your life to date? To narrow it down to one is is a little difficult. I have many apps. It is, isn't it? <laughs> I rely on all of them. So, you know, 
a really important one for me when you travel a lot you've got to know where you're going and what that looks like because I don't like to pack hardly anything um another flying one which I really enjoy is called simply being um which is my meditation app for when I fly but I think in terms of if, if I think of impact on my life there's a fantastic app called Amcal which really keeps um, my family and my work all connected together to make sure that I don't miss school events as well as work events, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's really good for me to help me plan. Awesome. Okay, so FamCal, it's called. Yes, FamCal. All right. Well, I'll be uh, sure to, <laughs> to check it out and the listeners can too. So, um, Tracy, where would you say your expertise lies? So, I think. Um, my expertise is quite broad. I would say in the broadest possible sense, you know, I'm, I'm a business person. Um, I've spent most of my career delivering growth through my marketing function. Um, but I would say in addition to that, and these three are not necessarily mutually exclusive. The second one is change management. I've moved a lot around the world. I've worked with multiple teams, different cultures, and I've often been brought into organizations to to take take them to to a different place. So change management. And the third piece is is being global. Um, I've spent the last 20 plus years of my career working in multi-country environments, which I which I absolutely love. Yeah, and that's something I'm really impressed by, and uh, I guess um, that I can't even think of that, that that's anything like you um, in your experience. Um, so I'm excited to dive in to a few questions around that. Um, before we talk about your super flourishing career, I would love to talk about your childhood, perhaps, and and how you grew up. Okay, so I, I'm Australian. I grew up in rural. Um, countryside of Victoria. Um, so I would describe my childhood as fundamentally very, very simple. I spent a lot of time outside. I played a lot of sport. I read a lot. Um, and there were very few, I suppose, distractions growing up. Um, and I was there until really until I went to university when I went to Melbourne um, and lived at college. So, um, so I would say a very happy and simple childhood, which I reflect on and, you know, have many, many fond memories. What did uh, your parents do? So my mum was, she, she was a mum, plus also she did accounting as well. So she did lots of different jobs for different people. And my father was a civil engineer, so roads and bridges. Very cool. Did you find that you're a bit of an entrepreneur back then in some ways, or were you just fascinated about you know, the economics of the the trading of, of products and services and, and that type of thing? So I think if I reflect, one of the things that my childhood, I suppose, is, has been reflected in my career is that once I kind of left um, the country environment, I wanted to see the world. Like I was very intrigued by different cultures, different environments. Um, and so I think that was... The simplicity bred an interest for something that was very, very different. So I think that was key. Um, mm. And I think, again, linked to that is my my mum in particular had a huge um, interest in in culture and the arts. So so creativity played a big part. Well, my dad was an engineer, so I had a big piece of analytical side to me. And most of my education, I was a science major so i think it was um i suppose my byproduct of my parents as well as my environment 
Yeah, I could totally see that. Uh, I mean, me being on the reverse of that growing up in Sydney, the uh, crazy city, which is always fast moving, um, as as with other cities, um, of course, um, London and New York. Um, and the, the thing is, I've been spending a lot of time in nature lately. You know, I visited uh, a, a weekend at Kosciuszko National Park. Lovely. Um, super lovely. And the it was literally no reception in the in the national park. And, and so I spent um, two nights at a yoga retreat there. And um, I was just like, gosh, I wish I could stay here a bit longer, you know? Um, I know. And so the fascination kind of goes both ways. But then I kind of think, oh, how would I have turned out if I, if I grew up here and then did the reverse? So I could totally see that happening. Then I think what's interesting, so I, I use very simple um, analogies. I use the city to get my energy, but I always, if I genuinely want to recharge, I will go to the country to do that. Yeah, and we're, we're kind of spot for choice here in Australia, aren't we? <laughs> um, Indeed. So one of the statements I loved reading on your LinkedIn profile was that you operate from a foundation of integrity, intelligence, enthusiasm, and exceptional relationship building skills. Um, so firstly, I applaud you for contextualizing relationship building with skills, as I've certainly found that quality relationship building is a continual learning process. What does relationship building mean to you, first of all? Okay. So I think just to give you a little bit of context that a lot of my relationships have been built remotely um, because I've managed teams remotely and I've worked with either agencies or or salespeople or whatever it is, it's not being done in the country and in the culture in which I have been living at the time. So I think the key thing, and this this is personal as well as in, in a working relationship, I think getting to know the person is really key um, and it builds a place of starting to understand and have empathy for that individual. So I'll just give you a little bit of context about how important that is. So when I first moved and worked in the United States. Um, I remember very distinctly going out to see a customer. I put my files in the boot of the car. I got out and I said to my work colleague driving the car, I said, I need to get into the boot. And he looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> and I said, I need, and I thought, you do not know what I'm talking about. I said, and I sort of looked at him, I said, I need to get into the boot. So I repeated it. And then I thought, right, okay. So I got out of the car and I pointed to what was the trunk of the car. And we both laughed at each other. And so I think, you know, the working assumption is, is you know, have that empathy, have that flexibility, um, get to know what, what people might have in common, might not have in common is really key. Then I think as you move forward, and this is more in a working context, I think um, respect is a really key foundation. So you as an individual building your your respect in terms of whatever discipline or whatever you're work in that working relationship with and vice versa. And I think diversity is important. So what I've learned um, is that, you know, some of the best relationships and particularly from a team perspective is that you don't want to have people that look and sound and think exactly the same as you. Um, I think that is is really key. And then I think, you know, the building bit of that is, is all about, you know, good communication and quite frankly, a lot of honesty. Um, and 
that sounds very easy, but in fact, that's sometimes incredibly difficult. Um, again, if you're dealing with language barriers um, or if somebody has always thought a certain way and you're starting to challenge that thinking process, you know, how you use your language, how you use your tone, how you use your voice, the pace at which you do it um, is all really crucial. But don't back away from being honest, How, even though that can be really, really hard. Yeah, I was going to kind of uh, dive into that honesty piece a little bit more. So the thing that r- comes through my mind is, as you said, with any relationship. So um, let's bring an example here. Um, you know, you enter a new workplace and yes. there is certain hiring criteria that they've had for you to perform. Um, and the only interaction, let's say, you know, you're the one going into that workplace. Uh, the only interaction you've had is the interview process and anything you've read or been exposed to of that company um, that's yeah. pu- public facing. What happens then if things don't align in that the the discussions around not necessarily your role, but how the business operates or how people um communicate as a team or culturally even um don't align you know how does one sort of navigate through that as i have i have had a lot of uh emerging designers and creatives start jobs and it was totally not what they expected okay Okay, so if you're entering, I think, you know, and you're going through an interview process, um, I think you need to think about the questions that you need to ask um, to sort of filter out some of those things. And you can contextualize it. So you can say, um, you know, what is your expectation in terms of timing? And there'll be certain key things that will start to filter out of that. The second part to that is that you need to be a really good listener. And there are cues, as I said, it's not just the words that people use. Um, if you're doing this face-to-face or via video, there are many visual cues. It's, you know, some people don't choose to answer, you know, and that, and so it's sort of, um, you need to be really thoughtful about the questions that you ask before you enter into that environment. And then I think you also owe it to yourself um, to be, you know, really clear um, about what your thinking is and why this genuinely is. A, I mean, I know you still need to sell yourself, but, you, you know, what is your genuine interest and why Why are you joining and what do you want to achieve? Because I think, um, you know, having that up front is really clear. And then the second thing is once you arrive, you have that discussion all over again. And then I think, you know, like any I think good discipline is that you should have that built into your KPIs for a six-month review and then for a 12-month review. I think discipline in that space is really good. I think the other thing when you're entering into a new environment is that you need to find there's two things that you need to hook onto when you enter into a new environment. One is who's going to be the person who's going to sponsor you. So who is the person in the organisation that when you hit a brick wall, you can go and have a talk to that is slightly confidential, but bearing in mind nothing is really ever confidential. Um, And then who is the person that, you know, will help promote you? So I think there's there's, there's two, two aspects to that. And I think establishing that 
as soon as you you get in, um, as I said, starting to build those relationships, you know, getting to know people. What do you have in common with them? Do you know, do you have children? Do you like a certain type of sport? Um, you know, do you have a certain interest in art? Um, you know, I think establishing those really quickly, but th- th- having someone who's going to be your ear that you can have honest conversations and help you explain some of the DNA because all organisations are different. So I think that's really key that someone can say, look, the reason why it is like this because historically it's like this this could change or this can be you as part of that change. But also, you know, someone who's going to help promote the good things that you do mm. because when you join, particularly as a designer, you know, you need to sort of get off to a good start and start to establish your credentials as soon as possible. So they, they'd be some of the things that I'd be thinking about. Yeah, that's a really incredible advice um, to consider. Uh, now, let's take a step back from that a little bit. We've mm-hmm. all heard the common phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yes. Um, a network of people can indeed help or hinder the speed of any opportunity. What advice have you got for those looking to build exceptional relationships without compromising their integrity? Okay, so I think um, I think again, everything starts from you. So, why would you want to build this relationship in the first place? Again, this is from a work, less from a personal, but more from a work context. You know, why do you want to build that? Because you actually genuine like them. You know, you get along with them, um, or is it slightly more sophisticated that in terms of, you know, I need I need to build a relationship with this person because if I don't. I'm not going to be able to move forward in the organisation. For me, I need to build a relationship with this person because they know a lot of people and they're going to help me understand the organisation so I can do my job better. Mm. So I think being really clear on why you want to establish that relationship, uh, you know, find out what you have in common, um, you know, what can you learn. But I think also it's, it is a relationship. It's two-way. It's a dialogue. What can you give back? So to all my people, that I mentor, I would say to them, you know, if I'm giving up, you know, an hour of my time to help them deal with some of their challenges when I'm mentoring them, you know, and I've done this with my mentors myself, what can you give back? You know, relationships are about two-way streets and think about what you can give that person in return, whatever that might be. For sure. I think uh, time is a huge part of it. Uh, The thing that comes to mind is that uh, when I've done these talks on how to get a mentor, my my second book um, launched last year is called How to Get a Mentor. Um, Some listeners would know that. The the thing that a lot of people coming out of the gates feel, and this was validated through Q&A when I've spoken all over the States especially, is that they feel that they don't have anything to offer. But that is so not true. I know. That yeah. is just just not true. Do not underestimate it. So everyone who's listening, you know, I look at myself and I just think it's a totally different world from when I graduated and when I came out. So you have you have just a whole different skill set, you know, and impart that. So, you know, as I said, the reason why I've got a fam Kel, because I've got a younger person who came and said to me, I just said, look, managing my life's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you've got to get on this app because it gives you your to-do list, it gives you your calendar, you know, you, you can have multiple people, you know, and you just think, fantastic. So I just wouldn't, the world is changing so, so quickly. The pace of change is only going to get more and more exponential. 
I think a lot of time young people take for granted they have a skill set around um, communication, pace and speed um, that a different generation of people, you know, I can think of a lot of CMOs who not in a mean years want to confess that they don't use Facebook not because they don't want to damage their reputation. They don't know how to use it. Mm. You know, there are myriads of examples like that. And I just think, so my first place would be, you know, ask and then think about what they do um, and think about technology because I think there's there's a lot of value that, a younger generation take a lot of things for granted that they can easily share and work with, you know, a generation who has less exposure to that but more experience. There are things like trends, but I think technology and trends, mm. you know, I just think um, it's lived in such a different way in a, in a 10-year period that I think any any context or any information, and I, said, and I said, just, you know, just ask, is there anything that you would like to know about me and it could be something as obtuse, obtuse as you know what I've heard you're interested in the arts can you just you know ping me when you've seen a great ex-? you know there are many ways to cultivate a relationship and again I think you know if we're talking to a creative audience you know this is the core of what they do I think you know seeking and trying to find out what that is and then coming up with a creative solution I think you know is really really interesting for people yeah, you're right. The commonality piece is a big one, isn't it? As a conversation it starter is. as well. Uh, now, from 1999 to 2010, for over a decade, you worked for Cadbury Schweppes. Yes. Uh, you worked your way up to Global Business Development Director. Uh, firstly, can you tell us a bit about the history around the acquisition of the Cadbury brand? In terms of when it was acquired yeah. in 2010? Yeah, yep. I noticed that... Um, it was once, of course, Cadbury, um, and yes. and now referred to as Cadbury Schweppes. So, how did that merge come about? Okay, so that happened. So, basically, seventeen hundreds, there was an individual who built up a drinks business, then, which was the Schweppes side of things, and then there was an individual who built up the Cadbury, which is the chocolate side of things, and they remained independent um, for. A very long period of time but what happened was there was the seasonality between the two businesses is incredibly complementary as you as you may well when you think about it logically so the drinks business has a spike during summer and a chocolate business has a spike during winter mm. so the combination of the two and coming together was the catalyst for why they sort of bonded since that time and later it was 20 uh, 2008 so 2008 cabbage webs then acquired a chewing gum business again again that was a totally different reason one was sort of impulse versus long term so the gum business is much more an impulsive rather than a take-home product like a, a beverage or or a piece of confectionery um and then in 2010, the business was actually acquired by Kraft Foods, um, and then it's gone through a number of acquisitions post them. But um, the key reason for the forming of the Cabri and the Schweppes was seasonality. Got it, got it. And so you mentioned Kraft Foods. Are they the group that owns 
So Kraft Foods is the is the overarching group, which has since been acquired by private equity quite recently. Um, but they, I mean, if you were to look the brand name up now, I mean, Cadbury sits under Mondelez. Right. Okay. So it's the Mondelez brand. So you know. So again, I think it's just illustrative of an ever changing, fast world. A lot of acquisitions. Um, brands get bought and sold. Um, you know, all the time, but I think there's exponential and that whole link into private equity. Um, I think it's also changing the business dynamics in which everybody works um, in terms of brand building as well. What were some of your responsibilities back then as the global business development director? Uh, and is there a story that stands out where you learnt a career changing lesson, perhaps? Okay. So in my time at Cadbury, I mean, it was. Absolutely a fantastic business, categories that were an enormous amount of fun and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, in my final role, I did lots of big global commercial projects and was basically looking at the organic and the inorganic growth. So what could we do with the portfolio to make it more productive? And then what could we do to acquire um brands um, that fit and complemented the portfolio. So at that time, premiumization was a big thing in this is the confectionery category I'm talking about, was a very big thing. So it was a lot of small boutique fair trade products coming through. So we did a duplet sort of strategy. One was to go and acquire, which was Green and Blacks, which was a very strong organic um, brand in the UK. Um, as well as what can we do to refresh the Cadbury brand, which was um, at that time, I suppose, traditional but needed to sort of to be freshened up, so to speak. Um, so that was a dual strategy and that was um, – it was called the um, Gorilla Campaign where Phil Collins was on the drum, which was, you know, a very non-functional take on confectionery. And I think the key thing out of all of that, in terms of that creative piece was that at the end of the day, you can have a glass and half of milk, which I think, you know, is a key differentiator. But so anyone else can do that too if they want to do that. So your formulations and all those functional things are key. They're an essential foundation. Taste is key. But having that emotional connection um, to your products, which I've learned since then and taking that through the whole way is absolutely what will drive growth and more importantly will drive margin. So I think that was sort of one of the key, key things that I saw alive and well. Um, I mean, confectionery by default is an emotional. People love it. The minute, you know, I say we're for Cadbury, people smiled, you know. Um, so it was a very emotional category in its own right, but bringing the emotional elements over and above the functional elements, I think was really key for um, it's still sustainable and very solid growth. Yeah, that's really cool. I love how you, I didn't know about the Green and Blacks brand because I actually really like that <laughs> chocolate. Um, and um, okay, so you go through this, looking at the portfolio process, what's missing, um, what brands exist that might be in alignment um, with Cadbury. Um, you mentioned taste. So side yep. question here, is it just me or does the Cadbury traditional dairy milk chocolate taste different in the UK than it does to Australia? It does. It does, doesn't it? It does. And there are a couple of reasons for that. So basically there is, 
a framework in which the Cadbury brand has to exist. But there are a couple of things that alter that. One is the milk um, and two is the oils or the cocoa butter that goes into it. So some parts of the world use cocoa butter and some use vegetable oils mm. and they also vary the taste. So you will find that the UK chocolate is slightly sweeter to the Australian chocolate. I was going to say, I kind of <laughs> like the UK one. There you oh, go. No. Slightly sweeter. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay. Glad we could, we covered that. Um, okay. So if we look at 2010 onwards from Cadbury, mm-hmm. uh, you moved on to Shell International mm-hmm. where you stayed on for about seven years from general manager of global consumer brands to global head of brand strategy in retail to vice president of external relations in Asia Pacific. Now, that's firstly one, one impressive resume. Um, what was it like transitioning from the food and beverage sector to the fuel and energy sector? So. Um- it was very exciting and very challenging. So I knew that there were going to be many things that were going to be different, but what I did focus on was what what can I bring that I've had in my previous life? And a lot of that is some of just the core disciplines around what it takes to grow a brand, what it takes to lead a team, um, how you move a team through change. So I think, you know, those fundamentals – don't change. What changes really is the culture will be in which you work will be different. The category in which you work, so the drivers of the category. Um, so I was talking about taste in confectionery include the drivers in the energy and fuel sector are totally, totally different. So I think once I arrived there, it was like, what are the drivers of the category? Um, where are we strong? Where are we weak? What differentiates us? Um, I brought in a lot more emotional communication um, in that space, which, as I said, was one of my learnings from my time at Cadbury. It certainly allowed us to increase our margin on a number of our products. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's different. And I think the other thing I learned was also, you know, to have a really clear plan and as I mentioned earlier on, is just make sure that you have the support. So I was very clear with my boss and in interviewing process. I said, you know, if you expect me to sort of, I, w- I will work as hard and do whatever is needed, but I, I want your support and I need to know I have your support, otherwise I won't join. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, it, I think being really clear on the support and then making sure that you've got support outside of your boss from two or three other people who understand why you're there, what you need to do, and probably have an appreciation for it. It's not always going to be easy entering, you know, a new business where the dynamics are are slightly different from where you've been before. Mm. I'm glad you, you, you shared to us that little caveat um, before transitioning, because I think a lot of uh, the listeners too, uh, there's a lot who are established in their career and who want to move on to the next thing. And there's this immense amount of comfort and familiarity with where they're at, as I'm sure in your case with Cadbury. And so to take that next leap, you, you kind of have an expectation, but you're driven by the newness and the, 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 in your case, a whole new yeah. category to, I guess, transfer your skills and to utilize into a whole new other global organization. Um, 
so I think that's important. And, and I guess this ties back to open communication, um, defining expectations upfront, um, as we spoke about earlier. Now, you've had a truly global career, um, as we've covered originally from Australia. Um, and for the listeners, Tracy has relocated to the USA, France, UK, Singapore. Currently, she's in New York. Um, Tracy, how have you managed culturally diverse teams across complex matrix structures both directly and virtually? Um, I think, which I mentioned before, you know, communication is so crucial. Um, and building up, I suppose, a, a database of things about why an individual might be behaving a certain way, what's the culture, what motivates them, you know, getting getting that context is, I think, really, you know, really crucial. Um, so that you can understand where people are coming from. So, for example, when I enter a team or a room of people, I don't know, the first thing I say, I'm Australian. <laughs> so, with that comes, I'm going to be quite direct. <laughs> so, like, you know, so you contextualise and explain some of the implications of, what's, of what that means. Um, and I think, you know, being really clear on, on expectations. So, you know, I hope to achieve from this what do you hope to achieve from that? And I think, you know, again, I've mentioned it before, but be a really good listener. And I think multicultural complex organisations, which I've always worked in, that listening thing is really crucial. And you've got to listen at so many levels because often you're dealing with people where English is not the first language. So you have to just, you know, take that into account. Is it just an inarticulation or does that, does that individual fundamentally disagree or doesn't, you know, you've got to sort of, I think over a period of time, you build up a repertoire of things about why you think something might be happening and what you can do to unblock it. Um, and I think from a behaviours perspective, don't assume anything. Ask lots and lots of questions. So even if you think you've nailed it, ask questions around clarifying that you genuinely understand what's being said, why there are challenges or issues, and what's the thinking about what we need to do to kind of move things forward. Or the reverse, when something's absolutely fantastic, why do you think that worked? You know, why was that such a resounding success? So I think... Um, that would be some of my my advice. Mm, okay. So let's say there was a creative leader or a creative director of some sort listening and they've got a team of, let's say, 10 people and mm-hmm. one or two are from Brazil, a couple are from UK, a few are from Asia, and some are from Australia. Um, how would that person create an environment or do you have a recommended uh, structure or tool, whether it be scheduling the, the sit-down meetings one-on-one or whether it be um, you know, some type of other session where they feel comfortable to ask questions? Because I think a lot of people have questions, but sometimes the environment isn't comfortable enough for them to voice that. And it's true, different cultures function in very different ways. So, again, if English is the first language, you'll find people will be a lot more verbal. Um, I always find, you know, Asian cultures will be a lot more quiet, for example, the Brazilian cultures that you've mentioned. So, I think, Mm. again, having an awareness of that. So, my approach generally when I've taken on new teams is I have one-on-ones with all of my team members 
establishing what they've been doing, expectations, what they like, what they don't like. So you you have that one-on-one. And then I like to, this is not always financially feasible, bring them together into a room together and align them on some really key things that they think that they need to do as a team. Now, if you're working on a slightly more project basis, which when you're client side, which I've always been, then agency side, I assume you probably have more project, you know, as much visual communication, and I think technology is great in this space, you know, if you can line everyone up on the screen, if, if you can't afford, the ideal scenario is you get them into the room for two or three days and you they get to know you better, they get to know each other better. Um, and so therefore they are a lot more comfortable when they return to their country to have a say as a leader, you should be extracting. If you find someone slightly quieter than somebody else, then, you know, in a, in a group context, you need to make sure that you pull them out. Then you can always go and have your one-on-one. So what I do with all my virtual teams is that once a month, I would have an hour and a half team meeting, but I would have one-on-ones with all my individual team members once every two weeks. So it's a combination of both because also that's part of the learning thing. People do need to learn to speak up with multicultures. We're getting more global. You know, there are no boundaries anymore. Um, You know, something gets released in one part of the world, it can easily land on somebody else's desk before someone else, you know, wakes up the next day. So I think... um, also challenging people to, you know, speak up or communicate their ideas. Um, and also I think I take, take into account that some people are audio, some people are very verbal, and some people are very pictorial. So, again, choosing as many different formats as you possibly can to extract that value from your team. And the same if you're a creative person, I would give the same advice if you're presenting something back to a client. Um understand how they receive information, how they process it, um, and what's the most effective and efficient. Mm. Managing's not easy, is it? <laughs> no, it's complex. <laughs> oh, goodness. Once, once you put in different countries, different cultures, different languages, um, yeah. different individual expectations, because also you've got people who, you know, want to be the CEO the next day and you've got people who are very comfortable. So, you know, are about to head into retirement. So, you know, I think it's, it's understanding all those things and making sure, I mean, and I would always say, you know, the diversity of the team is so powerful. It's really, really powerful. So making sure that those different voices you know not everyone needs to be liked but everyone needs to be respected Mm. and i think you know extracting some of that diversity and extracting some of that challenge is really powerful when you're developing things and creating a team Mm. i'm loving this tracy thanks thanks for your insight on that uh now in 2014 an article by marketing interactive um was released and you spoke about modeling a company's budget on where the company sees the most impact uh-huh. uh, and you went on to say if we have to make choices from investment preferences if we can't do it well we don't do it in that country we do it in the countries we can once we get those economies of scale or value we spread the pie it's more around budget allocation. I absolutely loved this insight. Can you elaborate on it a little further and perhaps give some examples? Okay. So I think um, particularly in the marketing space, and I think particularly in the growth space, you're never going to be short of choices. That has never been a challenge for 
anyone I've worked for, worked with, or who's worked with me, you know, there's always a million pieces of opportunity. But I think you need to be really, really thoughtful about two things, I think, is what's what's quick and easy in terms of return and what's going to give you long-term sustainable growth. So I think understanding that growth path and planning for it accordingly in whatever industry you're in is really clear. And then you will have to make choices because if you choose to be everything, you'll mean nothing to no one. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's not feasible to do that. Um, Even if, you know, you think of like the likes of an Uber and everyone thinks they can get an Uber around the world, which basically they can now. But, you know, 10 years ago, that was not the case. They made a plan. They made some choices. They failed. Um, so I think it's, it's again, it's about thoughtful about what you want to do, but then also the resources and the time that it takes to, to manage that. So I'll give you a really simple example. So, um, Two jobs ago in, in Shell, I looked at my revenue pie and 50% of that was in the US and 50% was rest of the world. So I spent 50% of my time on the bulk, but that's not where I spent my growth time. So the allocation of my growth was was in a different country. And so I think it's about it's about being, I suppose, ruthlessly efficient about where you think you can generally deliver change in the quickest and fastest possible way. If you do a three-year cycle, you might come back and review and go, actually, no, I've done ABC. It's time to go in a market that you may not, or a category, for example, you may not have chosen to do three years ago because you've got the resources in place or you've got the knowledge or you've required something that you can push something through the system. So I think it's, um, as I said, there are so many choices out there, but being thoughtful, about where you want to be in a certain time frame against the resource. I mean, I'm doing that exactly. This is exactly what I'm, I'm 10 weeks into my new role and that's exactly what I'm doing now. I have so many choices about a million things that I can do that I'm not going to be able to do them all and I'm certainly not going to be able to do all of them in the next year. So it's about which ones I think I can do the best that's going to differentiate me that are easiest on the resources and then make a plan accordingly. It's interesting because a lot of the times people look very top level and they can kind of go, right, so these are the easy wins, here are the long-term goals for any you know organization. But you've kind of diluted down your decision-making process because, as you said, there's, there's so much choice for opportunities, but it's kind of going, right, how is this going to feed into the bigger vision, the long-term um, roadmap. Um, and, and I guess it's a matter of going down to that detail year by year and going, right, how can we even track this? Um, and how are we, you know, what are we classifying as a return on investment as well? Um, you know, I guess it depends on the life cycle of the brand. It does. And, resource, and resources are finite and time's finite. So I'll give you another example, which I think is really interesting. So I look at an Amazon, you know, initially about books, but always online, utilised, you know, all their channels. Now, what's interesting is they've started to purchase retail sites, like physical retail sites. Mm, that, that's right, yeah. Who would have thought, including, you know, Whole Foods here in the United States, which is, you know, 
you know, a grocery channel to utilize their online channel because the Whole Foods online channel was really weak. So I just think, you know, it's not that something is not forever. It's just that there's a time and a place and successful, sustainable businesses, you know, think that through. Mm, Very cool. Uh, What practical advice comes to mind if you were to help designers or creatives start their own product or service business? Any crucial tips or foundational considerations come to mind? The first thing I would think about is know your target audience. So, um, you know, who are they? What can you deliver for them that differentiates you? You know, and understand what tools um, you can support yourself around, wh- whatever they might be. Um, and I think that's the beauty of technology is, uh, you know, I think there are a lot more cost-effective ways to do things and virtual ways that you can do things to get things done. I think the second key thing is really understand the insight. I cannot tell you how many times people miss an insight around what really differentiates a product or a service and being really clear about that and being really consistent about that. And I think it goes back to the previous point we were discussing. Don't try to be all things to all people, otherwise you'll be nothing to no one. I think, you know, know yourself, know who you want to talk to, make sure you get the most effective foundation of tools um, and technology around you. And then really understand what's going to differentiate your product or your service that you're you're bringing to the client. Yeah. In terms of the insight piece, how would you validate an insight? It's incredibly difficult and it's one of the most difficult things that you'll ever do. Um, so the first thing is you need to have quality data, hmm. whatever the data is. And it doesn't need to be prolific, although data is becoming more and more common and accessing it is getting easier and easier. Um, But I think, you know, get the facts, get the data, and then creatively dissect what is the genuine insight. So, I mean, and I always like to put it in a human context. Um, If you articulate it from a personal perspective, it becomes much more grounded. So, I'll give you an example um, of one that I just saw recently in one of our case study databases, which I think is really interesting. So the Leukemia um, Foundation here in the United States was struggling to get younger people to donate blood. So the whole the whole um, blood line access was declining. So they wanted to go out and think about how they went about that. So what they did was you know, people who give blood are generally people who like to be heroes or recognised as heroes. So they did a whole piece of work and they ended up at the comic festival in Las Vegas with a stand saying to people, all dressed up in all their comic heroes, so, you know, you had Batman and, you know, Miss Captain America and, and whoever else giving blood because they wanted to be a hero and contribute to somebody's life and they found matches. And so I think it's, um, you know, get the data, get the foundation of the data, then be really creative on how, what, what really is the insight. Mm. And I think, you know, spending time on that to crack that is really key. That's perfect. I love that uh, example. It's a great example, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sure that would have been a hit. Do you know the results on that? I can give you some very broad numbers. So basically, 
their donations, donate blood donors went up by 20%, and I think their matches went up by something like 10%. Wow. Plus also now they've got this whole word-of-mouth social media kind of network in that whole people who love comics um, mm. sector all talking about this. So ultimately they've almost created a movement. Very cool. Yeah, they've disrupted the exactly. usual perception. Exactly. That, yeah. You know, people ticket on their license or, you know, people have to ticket on, you know, some medical form. I mean, I just think it's, you know, in an environment where people feel safe, you know, it's it just everything about it. it. It was, I think, you know, it was one of the more creative insights that I've seen mm. recently where you think, you know, that that's really clever. Very cool. Uh, Tracy, a few more questions for you. Sure. Let's chat a little about your fairly new role, as you just said, 10 weeks in, um, president and CEO of EFI Worldwide. Firstly, for those that may be unfamiliar, what is EFI Worldwide? Okay, so EFI's uh, vision or mission basically is to champion and improve the practice and the practitioners of marketing effectiveness. So it's very much focused in on how can marketing contribute and when I, we say marketing, we mean this agency client side of anyone who participates in the spectrum of what marketing means um, to deliver growth. Um, it's an organization that has been around for late 40s, almost a couple of years' time, it will be 50. Historically has focused on FE Awards, um, which again gives awards to people who are considered champions and, and go through that case study, which the example I mentioned before is one of those case studies that sits in our database. Um, it's always stood for education and it's really, it's a forum for the industry. So if you look at our board, our boards, it's got a combination of the holding groups across agencies, it's got clients, it's got academics, it has creative, so it has a mixture, but basically it's a forum for helping the industry to move forward, specifically in effectiveness. That's fantastic. Uh, yes, I, I am familiar with FE personally from the awards side, um, but I'm, I'm sure there was much more to it than that. There is. There is. <laughs> um, yeah. What's your long-term vision for FE now that you're getting uh, comfortable mapping out the next um, couple of years and, and so on? Um, is there anything you'd like to impart to the design and creative industry, which certainly has a crossover in the marketing communication space. So one of the things I definitely want to do is the, as, you, as you've just said, the awards have been a big part of that, but I would really like to move it into a space where it doesn't matter what touch point in your career, you can have a relationship with FE. So I really want to move into the educational space um, so that we can, share and make sure that the next generation is prepared and it doesn't matter whether you're creative or whether you're a designer you always sit client side that there are you know the four key buckets that you need to think about the first one is clearly what what is the context or the challenge that you are facing to the insight how do you mine a great insight the third one is the idea or the, the creative that you make to to solve the solution and then the results. So I think, you know, I'm very keen to start to build relationships with students, which we do have some. Um, so we have the collegiate program here in the United States and we have that in a number of countries in the world. I would really like to have a training learning development schedule where people can have access and learn and grow in that space. Because I think if you are from the creative and design 
you have a role in that. But I think contextualising it around effectiveness will help you to better have a dialogue with your clients. It will understand some of the challenges that they're facing um, and help you, I think, deliver ultimately. The best product for me that I've ever had is a combination of awesome creative with a wonderful idea that at the end of the day is also measurable and deliver the results and if you can crack both of those you know there's nothing nothing more wonderful from a business but also from a creative perspective as well and real quick how do you define effectiveness i mean is it just that the client or the brand has a a kpi let's say or do you think that it's more than that So we deliberately do not define effectiveness. We let people define it for themselves because different businesses need to do different things at different points in time. So it could be anything from awareness. It could be building brand affinity or brand love. It could be, you know, return on investment in terms of sales. So I invest X, I expect X sales. It could be, you know, time spent on a social channel. It could, it could be myriad of things. So we deliberately don't define it the most important thing is and I genuinely believe this because this is what happens you know out in the real world is it's being really clear about the problem that you need to solve what are your objectives setting the baseline for the objectives so at the end of the day they are measurable so I'll pull up another social um case that we've that I saw so here in the United States um Whirlpool came up with an insight around Truancy here in the United States increases if children's clothes are not clean. So what they did was they went and put machines inside schools so that kids could either wash their clothes after school um, so that then they would have more pride. So a couple of things happened. Rates of truancy went down. The schools, test schools they did, the children's results went up, but also they sold more machines into the schools and into the government. So that's a very multi-tiered example of a very strong thread that runs across effectiveness. So we don't define it, but it's about being really thoughtful about your objectives. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Now, Tracy, a question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Tracy Alford, uh, perhaps the Tracy finishing high school, what would you tell her? I'd just say go for it. Go for it. Yeah, I just just think um, I've been privileged enough to have, you know, fantastic opportunities. I've been lucky enough to have people who supported me in my career. And my advice to everyone out there is identify them and build that relationship because um, it pays off. Has it been a lot of hard work? Absolutely. But I think being brave and being courageous as things that, you know, occasionally has been slightly stressful, but long-term has been incredibly rewarding. Mm, I was going to say, go for it almost has, <laughs> and, and I'm glad you brought, brought up bravery and courageousness because when I hear go for it, coming from you and knowing your history now and, and sh- you sharing this incredible um, journey that you've had so far, and, and I'm sure you're just going to continue leaps and bounds, but it almost has an element of, the fear wasn't as bad as you thought. No, and it doesn't. And and just sort of with risk comes, I think, growing and learning. Mm. And you know what? Sometimes things fail, but that's, I mean, even though that can be incredibly painful, that's okay as well. Yeah. It's absolutely fine. As long as you learn, you get up, you learn, and you keep going. Um, 
So, yeah, I just think, yeah, just embrace it all. Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life, Tracy? That person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? So, this might sound slightly odd, but this comes from a book I read years ago. And for the life of me, I can't think of the author, but it was the book was about how do you truly tap into your creative self? Mm. Um, and they said, think about anybody. And so the person I think about is someone who's actually passed away from many, many centuries ago, and that's Queen Elizabeth I. Right, okay. And the reason for that is is that you think about the context in which she operated and functions, like in 1530s, 40s, she inherited a country that was incredibly divided. Um, it was still growing up. It was incredibly primitive. Um, and she was a female where females didn't lead. Um, you know, she chose not to get married. Um, and yet by the time at the end of her reign, she had a significantly more united country. Her people loved her. It was much more prosperous. And, you know, she did that as a female when it, as I said, it was totally foreign and, you know, people were trying to um, poison her and threaten her and all that sort of thing. So I, she's one of those people that I kind of, you know, I reflect on, so what would she have done to manage, you know, some of the challenging circumstances? Mm. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, anyone alive that you would think? So alive, I would say probably Bill Gates. Ah, yep. He's challenged the status quo. He's done many fantastic things. And what I also love about Bill is he gives back. Mm. And again, he's very thoughtful. You know, the the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation, you know, he's chosen two or three things in which he will focus on that he believes are important for moving forward. And, he, you know, he continues to challenge. So he's a big person about thinking about artificial intelligence and it shouldn't run right, which I absolutely agree with. And he voices his opinion on it. So I think, and he was a reprobate, you know, he dropped out of Harvard. I mean, imagine telling your parents, yeah, thanks mom and dad, but you know, <laughs> so he's sort of my go-to person that's present and still, I think does tremendous things. Fantastic. Uh, so what's next for you, Tracy, with everything you're involved in for the rest of the year and beyond? So, rest of the year is I have my first board meeting in December, so I'm sort of frantically and the team's frantically preparing for that to get things done. And then I think next year will be continuation of the new and the change and building new products, um, immersing myself in New York, which is wonderful, has enormous amount of art and creativity of music around. Um, so, yes, yeah, so enjoying that as well. Brilliant. I'll be sure to uh, say good day next time I'm in New York. Perfect. Um, been there a few times in the last 12 months, actually. Um, so um, looking forward to catching up then. Uh, how can listeners get in touch with you online? Online, probably the easiest way for me is LinkedIn. Cool. Maybe uh, listeners, if you'd like to connect with Tracy, uh, put in a little message where you, where you heard her. Um, that way it's not so random. Exactly. It's, <laughs> um, that's always very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a big tip that I always advise um, to fill in the uh, default, remove that and, and type in a personalized message. Uh, Tracy, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, you have so much on your plate and it's been an honor um, chatting with you on behalf of the listeners and myself. You are a true inspiration. Terrific. Thanks, Ram. 
Thanks for listening to another episode. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tracy. FE Worldwide are doing amazing things. So I encourage you to visit their website, fe.org, to know more. In particular, their award programs honor and recognize all forms of effective marketing communications and the companies and individuals creating effective work in six continents and over 40 countries. Now, a little teaser for our next guest. He is arguably graphic design's most well-known designer. He worked at Vignelli Associates for 10 years before joining Pentagram as a partner in 1990, where he still works till this day, after 28 years. His clients at Pentagram have included the New York Times, Saks Fifth Avenue, the Robin Hood Foundation, MIT Media Lab, MasterCard, Princeton University, the New York Jets, and the Brooklyn Academy of Music. As a volunteer to Hillary Clinton's communications team, he also designed the H logo that was ubiquitous throughout her 2016 presidential campaign. He also served as the national president of AIGA from 1998 to 2001, is a senior critic in graphic design at the Yale School of Art, and is also one of the founding writers of the Design Observer blog. It's an incredible and extraordinary life, and I can't wait for you to hear about that episode with our next guest. Before you race off, a quick reminder to check out gettingamentor.com. If you're stuck personally or professionally, mentors will help you cut the guesswork, see the blind spots, and succeed faster. To access my 12-step guide on how to get a mentor, it's available in paperback, ebook, and audio formats. Visit gettingamentor.com. For any questions regarding the podcast or anything at all, the best way to reach me is via Snapchat or Instagram. Send me a message via my handle, The Giant Thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Tracy who said, Don't back away from being honest, even though it can be really hard. 